It's Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm your co-host. Uh, I'm executive editor of the Express News Group. We're publishers of the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the websites 27East.com and SagHarborExpress.com. Uh, with me is my co-host, Bill Sutton, managing editor of the Express News Group. Hey, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. One of my favorite groups of people on our panel today, Denise Civiletti, who is editor of the website Riverhead Local. Hey, Denise. Morning, how are you? Vera Chinise, who covers the East End for Newsday. Hey, Vera. Hey, Joe. And Gianna Volpe, who is the host of Heart of the East End on uh, WLAWFM right here on this station. Hey, Gianna. Hey, everybody. Good to have you. So uh, let's just, you know, this is called Behind the Headlines. Let's just get started with a really interesting headline, which is a column you wrote this week, Denise, because we want to get behind it a little bit and talk about what prompted, uh, you know, one of the great things about being a journalist is you get to vent your spleen every once in a while and you can sort of just speak unfettered about things. You, you kind of did that this week, right? I, I kind of did. I, 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 I said I, I said my head exploded and I, I just like all this came out and uh, that's kind of what happened, honestly. Um, explain explain what got you set off. Um, it was actually a series of things. I mean, um, just things that people have been saying at meetings. And uh, when I say people, I mean elected officials and and appointed officials. Um, statements that have been made at meetings that um, are either just really inaccurate or just don't even make any sense, um, honestly. And um, it's just been like building over time the last year. And um, I, I just, I, 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 I had enough. I just lost it. Um, I guess I kind of started with um, the, like the run up to it kind of began when um, the uh, deputy town attorney tried to explain why the town board didn't really have to adopt a resolution authorizing a special counsel being hired for a lawsuit, which is clearly required by state law. And her explanation was that it was because um, the, um, the town had already hired this same special counsel to sue the DEC. This was a lawsuit against the DEC, but they already hired him to sue the DEC um, in 2010, and that lawsuit is still pending. And it's a completely different lawsuit. Um, the resolution appointing him in 2010 had nothing to do with what they're suing the DEC over now. I mean, it was just completely preposterous. and. The town attorney, when I, this came to light because I asked for a copy of, I asked, when did they authorize this after I found that this lawsuit had been filed? And he said, oh, good question. I, I think they, I couldn't find a resolution. So I think that's because they, they didn't. And he like put a resolution in the next meeting to authorize this lawsuit. Like he did the right thing as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I guess that didn't sit well with somebody. And so, a member of his staff, a deputy, came to the podium and gave this what I consider to be a very tortured, twisted explanation of why it really didn't have to be done, even though, you know, we're going to do it anyway, which they did. They did it anyway, even though it really didn't have to be done. And <laughs> I was sitting there thinking, where am I? And like, I find myself more and more often thinking about that in the town of Riverhead when I watch proceedings uh, on, on, you know, the Riverhead town board on video or even when I'm there, but um, you know, like where am I? And it hit me that I felt like I was reporting from the twilight zone all of a sudden, you know, it's like, it's really hard to report stories, news stories when people and things don't make sense. You know, we've, we've all been there too. And I think it's one of the real challenges. I mean, everybody on this panel has faced this and, and I think the frustration becomes our role as a watchdog is supposed to be, I mean, I think you served your role there, Denise, as the watchdog on that. But the problem is your recourse is so limited. It's all you can really do is make people aware and hope that they have the outrage about it. But I don't know about everybody else on the panel, but that that often ends up feeling like uh, less of a victory than it than it should, you know? I've got a ton of fan mail about this, so I guess people oh, good. can relate to it, you know? Um, but it's just, you know, 
all every, a lot of things revolve around EPCAL because it is pretty convoluted and it's easy to lose track of what's factual. I mean, it's easy it's easy for the public to lose track of what's factual, you know. But um, it, it, the people in charge really should have a grasp of the facts. <laughs> and uh, when they say things like, and uh, honestly, this is what set me off the other day quite frankly, was the town supervisor made a statement at the town board meeting that the piping, the water piping, was already in the ground to serve the subdivision that hasn't yet happened at EPCAL. And that is just completely flat out false. And, uh, you know. So, so not, not, to, <clears throat> not to toot our own horns, and I know, Gianna and I were talking about this the other day on on her show, and and that's you, you know that's 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 really where that institutional knowledge comes in, and and again you know that's that's why I, I think why local journalism and, uh, and and particularly on the East End, I think we do a really good job of that. And, and Denise, you know that those pipes aren't there, and you're able to say, hey, no, wait a minute, let me <laughs> let me let, you know once once I get over the outrage, then you know then you can then you can you can write a story and say she said they're there and they're not there. And we can back that up. I mean, somebody attending that meeting just wouldn't know that and would buy that wholesale, right? I don't feel like I have any special perspective that allows me to know those pipes aren't there. It's a matter of like common sense that there can't be pipes in the ground to serve a subdivision that doesn't exist yet. Mm. You know, like it just—it's impossible. And Denise, how much harder is it for you to do your job? I know that part of your column, you had a grievance about. Uh, the way in which the Zoom meetings, the limitations of the Zoom meetings, mm. um, the fact that um, you know uh, the public ca can be muted, for example. How much harder has it been for you to do your job uh, at Riverhead Local uh, in this environment because it's been going on from well more than a year now? Well, I mean, I think I think it's as hard as anybody else finds it. I mean, you know, regardless of what body you're covering. If you are limited to um, by either proscription or um, viral uh, load in the community, <laughs> if you're if you're limited to watching things remotely, you don't get the whole thing. You know what I mean? It's like that. That's pretty clear. You, it, watching a, a reporting by video is not a substitute for reporting in person. And then you know the other complication is, as we all know, that you know a lot of times. Uh, what happens in meetings is just like a tip of the iceberg and you really need to ask a lot of follow-up questions. And now you're in a position of you have to start chasing people by phone. And some people are harder to reach than others. Are you getting access that you want uh, from the Riverhead Town government right now? Um, I would say sometimes. I mean, sometimes people are easy to reach and they return phone calls and other times they're not. Um, it's very good. I found it very increasingly difficult over the years, not just in this administration, but over the years, increasingly difficult to get um, staff people to talk to you. Um, I, you know, I know I don't know about this particular supervisor, but I know that past supervisors have issued edicts that you know nobody's to talk to the press without my you know prior approval, um, and that's the, the lay of the land. In, County, uh, county government today. That's the lay of the land. It's state government today, and we've seen it's at, the, at the county too. Yeah, absolutely. It's at the county. Yeah, yeah, we see it too. Very, very. You're being offified here, and I think that's probably because nobody ever gives you false information. Correct? Oh, you just, of course you, not. Just, you don't have to deal with this at Newsday. Nobody's oh, going to give you that information. Um, you know, I, I want to mention that this week um, I've been in touch with state officials in Georgia for a story. Um, their environmental regulator, uh, DEC equivalent, and what a difference it's been working with um, them versus our officials back here. How so? Um, I, I, I mean, I got the impression that, um, you know, maybe they don't work with the press as much because um, they were very, uh, very quick to give me everything I, I, I needed, very open with all the documents, didn't make me foil for anything and just imagine that. Wow. And, and let me tell you, I mean, the story that I'm working on hasn't come out yet, so I don't want to say too much about it, but um, it, it makes for better reporting when, <laughs> you know, you just come up with such such a better story when I, I have to tell you, 
before moving out here from Pennsylvania, I had never, and I had been a journalist for a decade or so, I had never filed a FOIL request once. Really? To get information. I never needed to. The, the local government officials were always willing to provide stuff. They, they didn't require me to submit anything in writing to get it. When I came out here and discovered that in order to get just basic information, uh, a lot of the agencies required a FOIL. I, I was yeah. sort of stunned by that. And when you get to the state level, I mean, those FOIL requests, it could take them years to get back to you. So it yeah. just really hampers the kind of reporting we can do. It's definitely a delaying process, no question about it. I, I want to back up just one one second. I mean, the the discussion Denise and Gianna were having about about the Zoom meetings, and and I think that's something that that we're looking at this week too. And we and we wrote an, an editorial that while it may make some reporting more difficult, it, it, it has in some instances made it made it a little bit easier. But we've also noticed that as as some of these municipalities and school boards are moving back toward live meetings, I think we've suggested that while that's a good thing and certainly shows progress, um, I, I think we've noticed that over the last year, the participation from the public in these Zoom meetings has really grown, um, you know, to, to, to great extents. And I think we would like to, you know, we, we have suggested that while they move to live meetings, they continue these Zoom meetings at the same time to, to foster that, that public input from parents who may have children and can't go to a live meeting or people who are working or, you know, if they have these meetings at, at odd times, um, I, I think there, the, you know, that, that maybe some silver lining from the pandemic that that if these municipalities can can keep broadcasting, live streaming these meetings, I think that's just good for open government. You've been hearing that from like every institution, like whether it's a church, whether it's a you know a nonprofit organization, uh, the the Zoom. Vacation has definitely helped um, bring people in the door. Um, the virtual aspect. Yeah, the limits of the technology are one thing, but I was lucky enough to host uh, the Bridgehampton PTOs Meet the Candidates night last night for school board candidates. And I believe there were more, more than 30 people um, in the audience for that virtual event. I don't think you'd get 30 people to come to the school for a Meet the Candidates night. So, you know, anything that fosters more participation, I think, is, is really crucial. Um, to, to keep going. And we talked about it, the editorial of it being, there's no reason you can't have the best of both worlds. You can have a live meeting uh, and also figure out a way to live stream. And I think in this day and age, uh, that's not asking too much uh, of the technology. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. Uh, with me is my co-host, Bill Sutton. Uh, also with us today, uh, Vera Chinise from Newsday, Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local, and Gianna Volpe from right here on WLIWFM. Um, so, Vera, uh, a new uh, tell, tell us about uh, the new thing that's happened in East Hampton this week with affordable housing. Uh, I've said I feel like we should talk about affordable housing every week on this show. Oh, sure. So uh, this actually happened about a week and a half ago. Uh, it was an announcement from the governor's office that a, uh, um, a 50 unit affordable housing complex in East Hampton uh, would be getting five point six million dollars in funding from the state. And now that so that's federal and state money that's administered through the state. Um, and that's a big deal. 50 units is that's that's big for out here. Um, and these uh, these projects can't get built without uh, federal state money and tax credits because um, the the open market doesn't allow it. Um, so, you know, it, it, on, on one hand, 50 units is kind of a, a drop in the bucket. But on the other, I mean, that's that's 50 family families that that's definitely we're out here. Yeah, yeah. East Hampton really seems to be. I mean, look, I, I don't think I don't think we'll ever catch up. I don't think any of the towns will ever catch up. But East Hampton really seems to be trying to to lead the way with with a few different projects that they've completed over the last few years. Yeah, and the administration has said that that's you know a big priority for them. Um, the developer on this project is Georgica Green. And um, so if you, if you follow these things out here, they've done uh, a couple of other complexes. They did um, Sandy Hollow Sandy in, Hollow uh, in uh, 
Yeah, and, and also Spionk Commons and Spionk. And uh, the developer will stress that these are, these are you know, high-end, well-made, well-constructed uh, units. And I think if you, if you drive past Sandy Hollow, um, there's nothing about that that really sticks out, right? I mean, it's not something that uh, really clashes with the community. Um, not at all. It's hardly hardly noticeable. It's, it's hard, really yeah. tucked back off the road. And uh, yeah, and, and I, it, drop in the bucket, it definitely is. But at the same time, I think East Hampton Town's waiting list for affordable housing is something like six years long. Right. Uh, so anything is better than nothing. And, and uh, you know, I'm starting to wonder if uh, there needs to be a conversation. We've always found affordable housing proposals to be anathema because of the increased density that you need to make them to make it make sense financially to do them. But I, I, I understand those concerns and the worries about quality of life and about changing the nature of the East End. But uh, the, the need for affordable housing is so significant that we, we need to change the strategy somehow. Gianni, you're nodding. You agree with me? Yeah, you simply cannot sustain the what we have going on here unless you build more housing to support the people that are working the jobs and keeping these places open. We have, you know, a huge influx of, of new residents to the area. Uh, you you see the conversation happening all the time. Who are gonna who's gonna feed these people? Who's gonna educate the kids? Who is going to take care of things and, and work the jobs. Um, you know, affordable housing is, uh, it's the conversation that we've been having for decades and it, it sort of uh, reaches back to something that um, I saw that Vera wanted to talk about, which is the Long Island Farm Workers Cooperative and the grand opening of, um, you know, uh, 10 farm workers who want to sell plants on Saturdays at the Amandla Center. Is that it, Denise? I, I didn't know quite how to, how to pronounce it. Um, but I think that's right. It, it's one of it's funny because I just interviewed Mark Torres, who wrote um, Dust for Blood, which is uh, the history of the Long Island migrant labor camps and sort of uh, that whole conversation. And, you know, people who, you know, uh, we're struggling to work here in order to support the incredible agricultural uh, scene that we uh, have sustained out here or tried to uh, for a very long time. And, you know, the rise of uh, how the housing situations that were not great, very horrible, in fact, uh, through World War II uh, up through the 60s. And it was interesting because in reading this book, I was seeing echoes of the same conversations that you see happen with affordable ha happening with affordable housing in it. And it seems like no one really wants to talk about these things um, until we, we get to a point where things get incredibly unsustainable. So I think it's like we've I'm glad to hear Vera talking about the fact that there's movement here and that towns are getting more aggressive about uh, really uh, answering the problem, because if we don't, what happens? And I think that the run up of property values in the last year um, has just made the situation even worse. And I think, you know, I think there have been a lot of people, uh, local people. I mean, it's, it's long been a phenomenon where people who were fortunate enough to buy houses uh, when they could afford them 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, eventually cash out and move to cheaper areas to live uh, and and make their money off their house. But now those houses are, are gone and off the market and unaffordable for the next generation of people to do that. I, I have a kind of a different, not a different opinion, but uh, kind of a, a supplement. Oh, good. About this. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that it's realistic to expect that you're going to be able to build enough affordable housing in these very high-end markets on the East End, right, that are saturated with people who, are, you know, have are wealthy people that can afford second homes, et cetera. That's happened to a lesser extent, but it's happened nonetheless on the North Fork. It continues to happen. Uh, and I think that while those efforts are good and, and praiseworthy, I think that collective, you know, we need to really focus on how we are going to get 
the people who work in those communities who essentially serve the people one way or another, whether it's taking care of their kids, cutting their lawns, serving them in restaurants, the nurses in the hospitals, how are we going to get them from places where they might be able to afford to live right. to where they work? Because the transportation system or lack of transportation that we have right now doesn't cut it. So it's like, it's all, it's great to have 50 units here and whatever, or even, you know, I mean, we've got hundreds of them in Riverhead, <laughs> but like getting the people to work where they need to go. I, I just, I just commute from, from Riverhead to, to Southampton a few days a week. And in, you know, this time of year and, and in the summer, I mean, the, the drive time that, that should be about 25 minutes or a half an hour is 45 minutes or an hour. I can't imagine what it's like for people who are, are coming in from from up west and, and face that traffic. And, and you're looking at a, a two hour commute one way just to get to a job in in Southampton or, or, or East Hampton or, or even you know North Shore. I, I mean, it's just it's just incredible. I know they had, they were they were trying. They had the commuter connection mm-hmm. um, pre pre pandemic where they they were trying to do the you know more shuttles coming in from from at least um, you know the hamlets out out west to to points east. But they had to shut that down because of of the you know decreased ridership during the pandemic. And I'm wondering if they'll get that going again. But that certainly talking about drops in a bucket. That's a drop in the bucket. <laughs> I think I think some of them came back after there was um, a bunch of a, a, not a clap back, but um, backlash from riders who were saying, look, the the with the limited um, uh, scheduling times, uh, the, the trains are too crowded. Right. And with numbers at the time, I think they were able to bring some of those uh, trains back on on. Uh, online. And I will say it started to gain some momentum uh, right when the pandemic hit. And it was a shame because I I, I do think it was getting a fairly steady ridership. But it's an interesting point. Do we need to just sort of throw up our hands and say there's really no solution to the affordable housing crisis on the South Fork and the North Fork? And maybe the answer is more about transportation. I know that at least one supermarket uh, in Southampton Village used to, I don't know if they still do, but they used to have a bus that ran uh, from Up Island that brought in the, the workers at the, at the grocery store. Is that the future for us? Is, is it going to be that this region just becomes too expensive for people who work here to live here too? More, more highways. I feel more like that's death. You have to worry about the fire department then. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like it's a death knell for a community if that's true. If you can't, if the people who who keep your community going can't afford to live in it, it's not, it's it's a Potemkin community. You're right. I mean, fire fire departments, ambulance workers, they're all volunteers and they all have to live in the neighborhood. Somebody's got to respond at three o'clock in the morning. They're not coming from Huntington. Eventually a paid service might be what happens. Yeah. Because, you know, I don't know. And I think I think what, what needs to be focused on in a real way is a viable public transportation system. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what Minerva would probably say as well. But, you know, we've been kind of chasing our tails with that for as long as I can remember. Decades. Yeah. Is is Denise, has River had an example of, of a healthy situation, though? Because I know there's a whole lot more. Uh, apartments that are going into Riverhead right now. And I don't think they're all just affordable housing. It's it's just actual development happening in, in downtown Riverhead, right? Yeah, I mean, there's one one comp, uh, one building that's being built right now, actually, that's supposed to be uh, market rate. Um, but the affordable units are, you know, the workforce housing. They're, I mean, they're not cheap, you know. I mean, you're it's, it's like close to what I pay for a mortgage on my house with some of these uh, two bedroom apartments. And there's very limited, uh, oh God. No, so I mean, that's the other thing is like, everyone is so afraid of building affordable housing that, that families can live in, right? Um, that they, they wanna build, you know, studios and one bedrooms and we wanna make sure that, you know, the, whoever's gonna live here, God forbid, they're not gonna have children you know, because right. yeah. community to live into the next generation. I don't, I don't understand that. I mean, it's all because of property taxes and, and schools, you know? I think it is. I think it's schools. Absolutely. It's 
the impact on schools. And I, there's a couple of things, you know, I was in South Carolina recently. And when you go down in some of those areas where they've had to create a lot of housing just to, just to uh, meet the demands for all of the people who are moving down there to retire, there's a lot of really lovely condo and townhouse based communities that you feel like um, th there probably needs to be some space for that. And I realized, again, that's anathema when you talk about the South Fork because that's, oh, we're going to become a suburban community if you do that way. I, I, I feel like there's got to be some balance to that. And the other thing I, I was really intrigued by is this move towards communal living, where uh, in some communities, especially seasonal communities, they offer housing that is basically it has common areas with uh, individual bedrooms for people. And they basically rent bedrooms and share common areas. It's almost like dorm rooms for seasonal workers um, for folks in East Hampton and, and Montauk and places like that, where uh, the, the number of seasonal workers is so high. I wonder if that doesn't become. Well, was, uh, it, an, was it the bridge golf course that just uh, that's putting in the uh, the shipping container housing converting converted shipping containers are going to be housing for their um, for their employees. Boy, I, yeah. I I'd want to live in a shipping container. <laughs> <laughs> movements, and that's definitely there's definitely that model at a number of uh, golf courses already here on the South Fork. I've also thought that the small house movement. Yeah, is something is something that should should arrive here and maybe right. is one of the answers to some of this. That I, that I live get. in a very small house, Joe, and I'd like a little <laughs> more room. OK, <laughs> well, I mean, Just, you know, we talk about healthy communities, right, and not having the people who are living in them that, that sustain the communities. I mean, having people who, who are living in families and ha that have children. That's part of a healthy community as well. Yeah. And I mean, when you're talking about putting people who work in, you know, seasonal housing or shipping containers, how is that different? I mean, it's it's basically the migrant worker housing model. In the fair point. Fair point. Yeah, we get it's all full circle. I mean, I think that's the I, the one of the things that frustrates me is this is a conversation we've been having in the 23 years that I've been here. And I haven't seen, I mean, it's lovely. Uh, you know, we started this off Vera by talking about East Hampton and East Hampton has certainly done some projects. And I think uh, they deserve a tip of the hat for keeping it on their agenda over the last 20 years, but there really hasn't been the kind of monumental movement towards addressing this problem that I think we need. And I, I don't know what the answer is. Maybe some of it, is I know Fred Thiel's bill. I was going to mention that. Yeah, go ahead. Explain what he has. He's proposed. Sure. So last year during the pandemic, the CPF fund, which is a uh, you know funded through a two percent tax on real estate sales, uh, it, it received record revenues, right? Because the real estate market was so crazy. So Fred Thiel has uh, this bill, a uh, similar bill passed the legislature two years ago. It was vetoed by the governor. Um, so they're trying again. And what this bill would do would levy an additional half percent tax on some real estate transfers. Um, the way it's structured is that the higher end sales would um, really, you know, feel the, feel the tax. And um, so that's this, um, half percent would fund affordable housing initiatives. And um, I don't know, I feel like that's a very progressive proposal. Um, you know, Fred feels a, he, he's an independent, um, but it, it seems very, to me, that sounds pretty, pretty uh, left wing, you know, to tax the, to tax the rich, to. Pay that's for actually why the, that's why the governor vetoed it. Um, it's a new tax. Um, what's interesting is I think Fred would explain that it actually would reduce the amount of tax that people right. would be paying because it would change the CPF uh, instead of I think it's two two hundred and fifty the first two hundred fifty thousand exempt. Yeah, it would that's actually the phase it, out. Is it take it housing. It's different different in the different towns, but well, you know, the also, problem you, I, so it would raise this big pot of money, and I and I I agree yes. it's a really good idea. But then what exactly do you do with it, and and do you run that's into it. the same issues of people who don't want? You know, well, you you know, we've got money for an affordable housing project. Fine. Don't put it in my backyard. You know, I mean, it's going to be the same the same issues. How do you overcome um, how do you overcome that? 
That's a bullseye. I think that's exactly the problem with that. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw of the Express News Group. My co-host is Bill Sutton of the Express News Group. With us today, Vera Chinise of Newsday, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Gianna Volpe of right here on WLIWFM. Um, so let's talk about uh, Calverton. And more solar. You know, we, I, as you said, Denise, every time you come on the show, you talk about solar. What the heck? What's your fascination with solar? It just seems like something happens every time right before I'm on the show. And, uh, you know, there's uh, um, 660 acres of um, land in Calverton um, clustered around a LIPA substation that's been there for a very long time on uh, Ed- Edwards Avenue near the railroad tracks that are in either approved or pending um, solar array, you know, solar production. So we're not trying, we're trying not to call them solar farms because that makes them sound like farms and they're really not farms. <laughs> um, and um, a lot of the land is former agricultural land, but um, it's been zoned and has been zoned for some time now as industrial. Um, and whether it was in agricultural use or whether people built homes in the, you know, because you can't have residential uses, um, it's industrially zoned land. So um, there, th- this last night, the planning board gave preliminary site plan approval to um, the fourth mega solar uh, facility that, that's uh, going in there. And a fifth one is even bigger, and it's with the state because um, it's so big that the state it has jurisdiction over it because... I guess they don't want to get it tied up in uh, people saying, oh, my God, not in my backyard, which is <laughs> what happens with uh, anything like like this. Um, but it really is a really, you know, it's a big impact on the land. It's a big visual impact. And um, the proposal that we got preliminary approval last night has had a very long and, again, uh, sort of tortured uh, past uh, to um, uh, history to getting to this point of why are they all clustered in, in the same area in, in Calverton, do we think? Is that just to be able to link into that, to be able to hook into that substation? Because that's how they get the electricity into the grid. That makes and there's sense. There's not a lot of trees either. It's pretty it's a pretty sunny spot. I suspect there's a lot of agricultural and industrial land up that way as well. Is that fair to say? Or? The land that this is that's all um, affected with or all uh, having these, these facilities built, they're all, it's all zoned industrial C wow. and the town board specifically allowed industrial C to, um, allowed solar uses in industrial C. Um, and, uh, again, a lot of it was farmland. And, um, as you mentioned, a lot of it, you know, the trees had already been cleared to, for farming and, um, it's, you know, proximate to this substation. So, um, you know, I wonder is this is this an Vera, Vera, is this an evolution that that um, the agricultural land is is going to just sort of uh, switch over to this new technology? It, I mean, are we going to see more and more of this in the in the coming years? I have a question for you, Denise. I mean, isn't a lot of the sod farms though? So that's you know a little bit different than traditional agriculture. It is different. Um, a lot of it is, and um, the uh, one part, one large part of the parcel that makes up this next era proposal is um, was actually the Long Island Sports Park, which at some point was a golf course, Calvinton Links. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of a lot of this was sod farms. Riverhead Solar One sod farm, Riverhead Solar Two, which is the one pending upstate now, is uh, those are S Power proposals. Much of that was a sod farm. Side farms on the other side of uh, Edwards Avenue on the east side, the first ones that were developed, the Sterlington and Sutter, I think, uh, facilities, those were also, I think, side farms. I mean, you know, they're not, they're certainly not vineyards. They're certainly not, you know, vegetable farms. Um, whether side farms are actual farms, I guess, is another Would it, yeah. Wouldn't it might stand to have less of an economic or environmental 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 impacts than a sod farm yeah i mean here's the here's the thing and this has put people in a funny position here because everybody wants sustainable energy like the people you know people who are you know kind of objecting to this even you know they want solar energy they don't want you know at some point they were talking a peaker plant at, you know at, at epcal so 
you know, they want this kind of energy, but they're looking at it in the sense of, is it too much in one place? I mean, but it's a matter of quality, but is it too much in one place? And is there like an environmental justice issue here? Because the people, because people do live in Calverton and, you know, they've got this big, um, for the former Grumman site and whatever is actually going to happen there, whether it's a casino, that's another, <laughs> that's another story altogether or something else. Um, you know, I was thinking this week, hey, wouldn't it be cool? That would be really great um, use of that land to uh, get like Columbia Care to build another uh, growing facility over there. Um, You're going to see those popping up too, right? Yeah, I mean, they just, uh, you know, as uh, our friends at Times Review reported the other day, um, they and lettering. Band of Wettering Greenhouses uh, at on the east end of, because um, there's two of those, but the one on the east end, they sold for $42.5 million to Columbia Care for... Which which I think is interesting because that's about the same as the F- FCAL sale price. Right, except it's 34 acres instead of 1,643 acres. But, I'm sure <laughs> the uh, Riverhead goes with the... Um, uh, dispensaries and cafes where they decide to go. I just saw Julie Lane reported on Shelter Island that they have voted to say to opt out for now, um, taking the conservative route there because they can always opt in later. Um, but I just saw that come out of Times Review as well just the other day. I think the, those decisions are going to have to be made locally over the next year or so. And it's going to be really interesting to watch how that happens, because uh, I think a lot of the communities may opt out and that's not necessarily going to solve the, the problem locally. I mean, you're still going to, you know, you're still going to be dealing with uh, the legalization of marijuana locally and the impact. Uh, but, you know, back to the solar uh, installations for a moment, Denise, I think we all support green energy and we all think this is a terrific movement towards more renewable energy. But those are very much industrial uh, looking developments on a property. There's no getting around that. It feels like it feels like that that's taking um, agricultural fields and turning them into something much more industrial looking. Uh, absolutely. I mean, and people have said that about big greenhouse operations as well. I mean, to talk mm-hmm. to the camera about that, but uh, it's absolutely industrial. And uh, quite honestly, um, so far, I, I think people agree that the town has not done a great job in um, screening and buffering those uses, right? I mean, we hear that all the time, and there's a lot of concern about this one as well. Um, the, the principal objections to this have been um, by people who well, uh, so a, a group of principal objections has been by people who are saying that the town just did not follow the law. Like they didn't do this correctly. They didn't do the review correctly. They they decked it. The plans changed. They refused to go back and look at it again. I mean, the plans changed at kind of at the last minute in February. They they brought in some some plans that showed that this um, the substation on site, the collector substation. That what they have to like get the energy and convert it and then feed the lipo substation, right? And um, was a lot bigger than anything that had been previously disclosed in terms of the height of it and stuff like that. So then they made them, they denied the plan, then they went back and they redrew the plans and they submitted all these new plans last week and yesterday they approved it. And you know, uh, Barbara Blass was at the a meeting on Zoom saying, you know, these are different plans. You can't just, you know. They, the DEC permits have to be redone. The Pine Barrens Commission has to look at these plans. Everything has been on a different set of plans up until now, including the neg deck. Like, how do you just say, oh, okay, and move this along, which is exactly what they did. Um, mm. so, I mean, you know, I think they're valid. And this is, again, you know, the whole environmental justice thing, because, you know, the, the wind farm wants to put a cable across a beach in East Hampton, right? It's East Hampton. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, there's like two different law firms hired to fight this, you know, because the people have the resources. The people mm-hmm. that are largely working class folks in Calverton are like, these people can come and do whatever they want, knowing full well that they're never going to get sued. So, That's a real interesting point. There's a, there's definitely an imbalance there. That's an environmental justice issue. Yep. Yeah. 
This is Behind the Headlines uh, on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We have Denise Civiletti, Vera Chidise, and Gianna Volpe with us. Um, Gianna, we talked earlier about uh, an announcement this week that uh, a long-time, long-planned project in Southampton Village um, looks like it's going to finally get to cut the ribbon pretty soon and on a very uh, important date. That's right. Juneteenth, the African American, the South American Museum will finally be opening and a perfect date for that to be happening. I actually I want to uh, defer to Vera uh, to talk more about this because I gave Brenda Simmons a call on the way in, but I didn't get through to her. I will definitely be having her and Dr. Georgette Greer Key on the show uh, as we lead up to the opening. But I imagine Vera has had uh, more contact with them about, uh, you know, this the final movement here. This is really exciting. Yeah, I, you can't talk about the Southampton African-American Museum without saying the name Brenda Simmons. This has really been she's been the driving force behind this for many, many years. Um, it's so a labor project, of love for uh, her, isn't it? I mean, it's 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 really been her main mission for a very long time. And I, 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 yeah. I know how much it means to her. So it's really exciting that it's finally going to going to happen. Yeah. And uh, so it was thought that it would be done about 2019. That was the last time that a kind of a tentative date was set. But there was uh, some problems with the contractor, um, you know, which is something that happens with uh, state municipal law. You have to go with the lowest responsible bidder. And sometimes that doesn't work out so good. But um, the construction problems have been remedied and uh, now. This space, uh, which was a former uh, beauty salon and barbershop in Southampton Village, um, is going to be an exhibition and education space. And it's, you know, it's a real it's a great thing for Southampton Village to really honor the contributions of um, the black village residents over the years. It's in a nice, visible spot. Yes. And, and, it, and it's also uh, sort of right there on, on the edge of Hillcrest, which is a traditional African-American neighborhood in Southampton Village. I think it's a, a it's a wonderful thing. Um, but, you know, Brenda, she's sort of a force of nature, isn't she? I yeah. mean, I, there've been so many so many elements sort of aligned against this project. Uh, just just making it difficult. I'm not yeah. sure there was opposition. It's just that everything sort of got thrown up to make it a little harder. Um, and she's really stayed the course with it. Bill, we, we had a story not too long ago about um, Brenda with a fight that she's had also over the Pierce Concert House, which is another project in Southampton Village related to um, the African-American history of the village, which really has never gotten the appreciation um, that it deserved over the years. But Pierce Cons are also a key figure. And she's had the she's had a, a real fight on her hands with that as well. Right. On, on both fronts. Yeah. I mean, and there's just a lot of political maneuvering on, you know, on, on the Pierce concert house and, and all that. And, you know, I, I think it'll it'll move through. It, it was I mean, unfortunately, the house was was destroyed and, and that was, you know, they weren't able to 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 save it in time, although um, elements of, of the building were 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 saved after it was demolished. And, and I think they want to uh, to try to use that to to rebuild it. But, yeah, if it weren't for for Brenda, I don't know that any of these things would, would be happening. And just a reminder, Pierce concert was uh, there's some debate over whether he was an indentured servant or a slave, but he bought his freedom um, back in the 1800s and uh, was a whaler. Uh, he was believed to be the first black man to set foot in Japan. Uh, there's actually a statue revered in, in Japan for saving yeah. uh, saving a crew of of, uh, of Japanese sailors and, and bringing them bringing them home. And they celebrate his his, his birthday every year, I think, or the day that he that he rescued those people. And I, I we wrote one story years ago about um, the you know Japanese tourists who had come to Southampton looking for evidence of, of, of him in the community and, and finding that the community had no idea who he was at the time or a large part of the community. 
anyway. Which is sad. I mean, it's yeah. a, it's it's sad that, that that's a piece of our history that was largely lost for a long time, but for the efforts of of Brenda Simmons and and some other folks. But um, yeah, I find it ironic too that that what we're hoping to do. Um, on that piece of property in Southampton Village now is essentially to rebuild a house that was torn down, um, even though there was this whole discussion was taking place um, while there was still time to save um, the house that at least retained a part of the original house that Paris Concer actually lived in. Um, but the pressures of Southampton Village real estate are so great that they couldn't save it. And now the, the new problem is there is some talk that neighbors of that property might be starting to raise a fuss about it and maybe uh, debating whether there should be a museum there and a project there. And I think that's uh, that's what we wrote about uh, recently, that Brenda's had to fight that battle all over again. It goes back. Yeah, I can't even imagine, um, especially speaking with her and talking, uh, hearing her stories of growing up uh, black here in Southampton Village and uh, through through the 60s. And sort of, uh, I kind of imagine it as sort of a, what she might perceive as sort of a re-traumatization, sort of uh, reliving these things. And um, thank goodness for people like her. Um, it sort of brings me back again, uh, thinking about our conversation with Mark Torres and his book, Dust for Blood in the Long Island Migrant Labor Camps. There was a Reverend uh, Arthur Bryant, I believe his name, uh, from Greenport. And just reading the quotes from this man uh, speaking to Congress and fighting this fight for people who did not have uh, as strong of a voice in the community or any at all. Um, you just, you look at people like Reverend Arthur Bryant, like Brenda Simmons, like Dr. Georgette Greer-Key, and you just say, thank goodness for people like that who fight the good fight. People like all of you who um, fight every day uh, to make sure that the community is informed. Um, I'm just very grateful. You know, the interesting thing about the book that talks about uh, what's really a dark history of the uh, the local um, migrant workers, um, you know, it, it's an unpleasant history and there was a lot of mistreatment of those workers. But what's ironic is so much of the black community uh, that is now intertwined with uh, the South Fork and the North Fork um, is the result of those migrant workers who came from North Carolina and South Carolina and, and came in and, and ended up staying and have become just a part of the fabric of the community. I mean, it's, it's a, again, it's just an essential part of the region's history that's been just sort of lar largely ignored for a very long time. So, yeah. uh, the, so the African-American museum opening. So it, uh, Vera, it's, it's set to open on. June... There's going to be a ribbon cutting, um, the day before Juneteenth, June 18th. Oh, okay. So, in, you know, in time for Juneteenth. And then Juneteenth, I think they have a celebration planned as well. Uh, for June, June 19th oh, as well. Okay. Um, I think they, I think that's another event that's happening, but I think it's all sort of interconnected. So, okay. So let's, uh, let's coast into the uh, home stretch here and talk about uh, stories that we're looking at for next week uh, in the, in the coming days. Let's put it that way. Denise, what are you working on? I'm getting fitted for a bulletproof vest. <laughs> <laughs> Occupational hazard. Denise. Um, you know, as usual, I don't know. <laughs> I'm my list. I, it never works out to, to be what I'm trying to. That's the, the one thing. It comes fast and furious, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, well, whatever I plan to do, the plans are always out the window before I know it. So it's just like, I, I don't know. Um, News happens. Yeah. And, you know, I'm the one-armed paper hanger, as they say, around here. So, um, you guys please make t-shirts that say news happens. <laughs> I, one. I have my, I have my Sisyphus t-shirt that I wear on deadline day. Cause that's what it feels like. You roll the rock up the hill and you get it there and it rolls right back down. That's the job. Um, but it's, it is national nurses week. So, um, 
Olivia Mills, the chief nurse, the chief nursing officer and VP of patient services at Stony Brook Southampton Hospital coming on with us next week. And thank you to all of you out there on the front lines through this past year. OMG, what would we have done without our nurses? What, a, what an amazing thing this past year. Um, it's brought a whole new appreciation for the medical community, I think. Absolutely. And by the way, I'm sorry, Bill. I said just that absolutely. Yeah, and, and I, I, it goes back to the affordable housing thing. When you can't afford, when, when nurses and doctors can't afford to live in your community, you've got a real problem. So, um, Vera, what, you, what are you working on other than this mysterious calls to Georgia? Which oh, well, I, I, could, of, I could talk about that because uh, it's hopefully the story will be published by the time this airs, you know, fingers crossed. But uh, so, um, you, you know what a stop event is the, uh, the these towns, all, all the towns kind of um, host these events where you could throw out what's under your sink and in your garage, um, these pollutants that can't really go in a, a traditional landfill. Uh, so a number of Long Island towns were contracting with this Carter, um, you know, all the towns use all sorts of different Carters, but this one in particular was um, storing the materials in a warehouse in Georgia and um, ran into some violations down there. The situation got pretty bad. Um, and uh, according to state officials in Georgia, it posed an immediate threat to life and health. Uh, so that's how, how bad this uh, situation deteriorated down there. Um, so I just think it's really interesting because y y it's like, you know, I, I don't know if anybody else thinks that, but I wonder, well, where does this stuff go, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, of course. And um, so it's just kind of interesting, illuminates like some of the problems that could happen down the road once, you know, once you give it to the uh, throw it out at the dump. So like, like it or not, like it or not our, our community is interconnected with with a lot of communities in that way. And, and the things that happen here have a, have a negative effect in other places. So, yeah good on you. I'm looking forward to reading that. That's yeah. I, I had seen, I had seen that, uh, on the South nationally. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, the, the, about the, the issues that were raised down there. So I look forward to reading your article about that. So, all right. That's the uh, latest edition of behind the headlines and uh, a good one. I think it was. So I want to thank uh, our panelists, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, uh, Gianna Volpe of right here on WLIWFM and her show, Heart of the East End, of course, and Vera Chinise of Newsday. Um, and thank you, as always, to my co-host, Bill Sutton. Bill, thanks. Uh, I invite you all to come back uh, next week. And uh, thank you all for joining us this week. Uh, thank you guys for being here. <laughs>